Please turn with me in your Bibles this morning to the 16th chapter of Matthew's Gospel, where we'll take as our text verses 13 through 19. Matthew 16, beginning at the 13th verse. Hear now God's word. Now when Jesus came into the parts of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, saying, What do men say that the Son of Man is? And they said, Some say John the Baptist, some Elijah, and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. He saith unto them, But who say ye that I am? Simon Peter answered and said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered and said unto him, Blessed art thou, Simon, bar Jonah, for flesh and blood hath not revealed it unto thee, but my Father who is in heaven. And I also say unto thee that thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. I will give unto thee the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatsoever thou shalt bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatsoever thou shalt loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. And thus far the reading of God's word. This morning I'd like to speak to you on the sure growth of the church. That may seem a rather fatuous thing to do. After all, Pastor Bonson, can't you look around and see how bad things are all around us? Can't you see the evident state of decline in the church? Can't you see that the church is being oppressed on all sides, that we're losing numbers, that it's a losing battle really here? In fact, if you will read some of the popular literature that comes out of Christian circles, it will be told to you that it is part of God's plan of the ages that the church should decline, that almost by definition at the end of the age, the church must be in a very uh, sorry state. It must be a minority. It must be pushed down and oppressed, not having great power or influence in this world. And, of course, this is the end of the age. You'll be told that repeatedly in the literature that is published. Of course, it has been the end of the age ever since 800 A.D., when people started saying that sort of thing. It was the end of the age around 1,000. It was the end of the age in the 1400s. And, of course, at the Reformation, the Enlightenment brought the end of the age, and, of course, turning to the 20th century. And World War I was certainly the end of the age, and if it wasn't, well, then World War II was certainly the end of the age. And we know that all the conflicts and political turmoil and social unrest that we've seen since that time is certainly a sign of the end of the age, and, well, on and on it goes. We are at the end of the age, we are told. And at the end of the age, the church must be a minority influence in this world. It must be an oppressed body. It must be losing ground constantly, and that almost by definition. I want to suggest that this day of despair and pessimism for the church indicates a failure to trust the promise of Jesus Christ. It indicates a lack of confidence in what the Lord of history and the Lord of glory has said about the building of his church. For Jesus told his followers, I will build my church. And I want us to focus on that this morning. So we consider the promise of Jesus Christ about the sure growth of his church. In Matthew, the 16th chapter, the author of the gospel sets up the situation for us. When Jesus comes now into those parts of Caesarea Philippi, he is going to inquire of his followers, what are people saying about the Son of Man? Who do they think the Son of Man is? 
this figure that is referred to in the prophecy of Daniel, the seventh chapter, who comes to the Ancient of Days and receives a kingdom that shall know no end, a kingdom that shall rule over all the earthly nations. Jesus says, who are people saying the Son of Man is? He's asking, however, more than just who is the figure spoken of in Daniel. Jesus is saying, who are people telling you I am? Because throughout his teaching ministry, you'll notice, and Matthew in particular emphasizes this, Jesus takes upon his lips the title, Son of Man. Who is the Son of Man? What are people saying about this? What kind of theories do you hear regarding that? And Matthew rehearses some that are given back to Jesus. Some think that Jesus is John the Baptist, risen from the dead. Some think that he's Elijah, other Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. I want you to put yourself in Jesus' position. Would you not be satisfied to have people think that you were Elijah? <laughs> Would you not be satisfied to have people think you were Jeremiah, come back from the dead? I mean, these are mighty prophets of God. This is high praise and flattery for Jesus. And that it should be a commonly voiced opinion says something about the kind of impact and impression he made upon people, upon the population of his day. Jesus says, who are people saying I am? And they say, they think you're some great prophet, Jesus. Jesus says, that's not enough. That's inadequate. It falls short of what the right answer should be. And he says then, personalizing the question to his own followers, but who do you say that I am? You know what the opinions are out there abroad in general. More particularly, I want to know what you think. Who do you think that I am? And Simon Peter answers. I want you to understand this is not because Simon Peter was smarter than the others. This is not because all the others have kind of missed the point and Simon just kind of, you know, happened upon the right answer. It's more because you'll find throughout the Gospels that Simon often is the spokesman for the apostles. Yes, he was an impetuous person, and we see some of the foibles of Simon's impetuosity in the Gospel. But it's not just that he jumps forward with the answer. It's that so often he does speak for the group. And Simon, now speaking for the others, says, You are the Messiah. You are the Christ. You need to understand that the word Christ means Messiah. It is the Greek version of the Hebrew word Messiah. It's a very important confession on the part of Peter. Sometimes those of us who are accustomed to seeing the name Jesus Christ in the New Testament get the idea that Jesus is his first name and Christ is his last name. But it doesn't work that way. Christ is not a name. Christ is a function. It is a title. It is an office that he holds, a position of dignity. It's his status. And so when Peter says, you are the Christ, you are the Messiah, what he's confessing is that that one that we've been looking forward to ever since God uttered the promise in Genesis 3.15 to send the seed of the woman to crush the head of the tempter, that one that we've been looking forward to ever since Moses spoke of the great prophet who would come, even greater than Moses himself, to declare the word of God to us, that one who would come to be the great and final high priest to offer a sacrifice for sin, that one the prophet spoke of who would come to fulfill the prophecies about David sitting upon his throne, you are that one. You are the Messiah. That's our opinion. We confess you to be the one that was prophesied of old, the Messiah. And the Messiah understood as the son of the living God, not just some kind of earthly political ruler, not just another one of the Levitical priests, not just one of many prophets, but God the Son. We understand you to be divine. We understand you to be the Messiah, God's own Son.
And Jesus answered and said to Peter, You're blessed for this, Simon, son of Jonah, because flesh and blood doesn't reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And as an aside, let's remember that, that when people come to the conviction that Jesus is to be confessed as the Messiah, that doesn't take place by flesh and blood. That doesn't come about through ordinary human means. It does not transpire because some people are smart enough to figure it out. That in their own natural human strength or wisdom, they have come to that conclusion. The Bible tells us that that is something that takes place when God changes the heart and enlightens it. And so, Simon, you get no credit for this because it was revealed to you from my Father who is in heaven. And then Jesus utters these famous and often controversial words, words over which much debate has been spilled. And I say unto you that you are Peter, Petros, the Greek word. And upon this rock, upon this Petra, I will build my church, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. I want us to focus on this verse this morning, having put it in context. Jesus promises to Peter that upon this rock, Jesus will build his church, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. First of all, notice Jesus says, I will build my church. I will build my church. When we see the church of Jesus Christ advancing in this world, when we see it being built up, when members are being added to it, when we see its missionary success, when we see its influence in culture, when we see the church building in this world, growing in this world, we need to understand this is the divine work of Jesus himself. Men do not build the church. We have programs where we try to to do the best we can to get people interested in the gospel, programs to reach people and to worship God aright. That's true. And the church is governed under Christ by elders that are set in place by him. Men are involved in the work of the church and the ministry of the church and the proclamation of the gospel, but men do not build it. Jesus builds the church. Jesus is the one who's behind all of the growth that we see in the history of the Christian church previously and in our own day. I remind you of that because often those who in Reformed circles proclaim that Jesus is Lord of the church and that church is going to be victorious, that we're going to see growth in the church, are accused of teaching that they will bring in the kingdom of God themselves. And nothing could be more slanderous, nothing could be more further from the truth than to accuse a person who believes in the work of the Spirit of God at Jesus' direction through the gospel changing men's hearts. Nothing could be further from the truth that those people think that they are building the church. If they do, they are sorely misled, and they are not being true to their Reformation theology at all. We cannot, as uh, followers of the doctrines of Calvinism or the Reformation, find in ourselves any ability to establish God's work. God does his own work through us. And just as a reminder that we might be humbled as appropriately we are to be humbled, God doesn't need us to do his work. If God's going to establish his church, he'll do it with or without Dr. Greg Bonson. If God's going to establish his church, he'll get the word out, whether it's through you or through the stones that speak. God will do his own work. We are not indispensable to his kingdom. And so let's remember Jesus' emphasis, I will build my church. It's going to be the work of the Messiah himself. And if you'll turn to Isaiah, the 53rd chapter, you'll see that this work of building the church is based upon the redemptive ministry of the Messiah. 
that he will come and offer redemption for God's people, and this will be the foundation for the church's growth. Isaiah, the 53rd chapter, verses 10 to 12. You'll remember, of course, that Isaiah 53 is that beautiful prophecy of the suffering servant of the Lord who will come and will be wounded and bear our sorrows and griefs so that our iniquities are taken away. In verse 10 of this famous chapter, we read, Yet it pleased Jehovah to bruise him. He hath put him to grief. When thou shalt make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed, he shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of Jehovah shall prosper in his hand. He shall see of the travail of his soul, and shall be satisfied. By the knowledge of himself shall my righteous servant justify many, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore will I divide him a portion with the great, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul unto death and was numbered with the transgressors, yet he bare the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. Do you see how woven together with these well-known phrases about redemption, he pours out his soul unto death, he's numbered with the transgressors, he offers um, uh, an offering for sin and so forth, that mixed in right along with all of these redemptive indications is that Jehovah's pleasure will prosper in his hand. He will be satisfied that his work has accomplished what he wants it to do. He will divide a portion with the great and divide the spoil with the strong. The Messiah shall be victorious in his redemptive work. God's work will prosper in his hand. He will not be disappointed. Let's remember that when people tell us that Jesus died on the cross for all men indiscriminately that he died for those who will constantly, persistently refuse his offers, for those who will reject him and blaspheme him and shake their fist in his face in this life. People tell us Jesus died for all, but this tells us he did not die for all, because if he died for those who will not receive him, he cannot be satisfied with the travail of his soul. He cannot be satisfied that his suffering and agony has accomplished all that he wanted it to do. The fact of the matter is, Jesus did die upon the cross in a humiliating, suffering fashion, agonizing fashion. But the Bible assures us that what he did upon the cross will reach its desired conclusion. He will see the travail of his soul, and he'll be satisfied. And Jesus will not only be satisfied because he won't lose any for whom he has died, but he died for many. God's work will prosper in his hand, and he will end up dividing the spoil with the mighty. His will be the dominant influence in history. And so Jesus' building of his church is based on his redemptive work, and it cannot fail. And if you read right on, here's another one of those cases where a paragraph uh, or a chapter break may mislead you. Chapter 54, verse 1 of Isaiah continues, Sing, O barren, thou that didst not bear, break forth into singing and cry aloud, thou that didst not travail with child. For more are the children of the desolate than the children of the married wife, saith Jehovah. Enlarge the place of thy tent. Let them stretch forth the curtains of thy habitations. Spare not. Lengthen thy cords. Strengthen thy stakes. For thou shalt spread abroad on the right hand and on the left, and thy seed shall possess the nations and make the desolate cities to be inhabited. What will be the prosperity of Jehovah's work in Messiah's hand? Isaiah says, you, you seem so barren. 
the people of God who seem so broken down, who seem so oppressed, seem almost ready to go into oblivion. Cry forth, because your children shall be greater than the married wife. You seem barren to the world, but God will prosper you. And then in verse 2, this beautiful prophecy. He says, enlarge the place of your tent. Get a larger meeting hall. Get a larger tent. Strengthen the stakes. Lengthen the cords. We need a bigger place to meet because God's going to bring in people from all the nations. Thou shalt spread abroad on the right hand. You shall spread abroad on the left, and your seed will possess the nations. Messiah's work shall be accomplished, and it will be a glorious work as he builds his church and brings in the nations. You will need ever larger meeting places, Isaiah says, because the people of God will spread all over the place. Jesus says, I will build my church. In Matthew 16, he says he will build his church upon this rock. I say unto thee, thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church. This uh, rock is subject to many interpretations and a great deal of debate that I'm not going to entertain you with this morning. I want to point out uh, very simply that Petra is the feminine Greek form of Peter's own personal name, Petras. Jesus is clearly playing on the two. We cannot divorce Peter from this picture, as some Protestants not liking Roman Catholic approaches to the passage have tried to do. Jesus says, you are Peter, upon this Peter, upon this Petra, there's a slight distinction, I will build my church. And why does he speak of Peter? Because Peter has just given the proper confession. Who do men say that I am? Who do you say that I am? Peter says, we say, you're the Christ. Jesus says, upon this Petra, I will build my church. Peter has made the proper confession, and yet it is not Peter, the individual, that is the foundation of the church. It is Peter representing the confessing apostles. I've already told you, Peter is speaking for the others, not just for himself. And it's as Peter makes the proper confession that he and the apostles are the foundation of the church. We must qualify that it is Peter, the confessing apostle, not Peter, in and of himself. Because if you go down to verse 13, excuse me, 23, if you look at verse 23, Jesus turns and says to Peter, when Peter says, far be it from you, Lord, that you shall uh, have these things happen to you, that you should be killed and turned over to uh, your enemies. Jesus turns and says, Peter, get thee behind me, Satan, thou art a stumbling stone. I mean, now, just in the next paragraph, Peter becomes categorized with Satan. So it is not Peter per se who is the foundation of the church, because then we'd have Peter and Satan being the foundation of the church. It is Peter as he confesses Christ purely and truly representative of the apostolic band. It is the confessing apostolate that is the foundation of the church. And if you can't see that just in context here, let me give you a couple of other passages that will confirm that interpretation. If you turn to Ephesians, the second chapter, verse 20, Paul speaks of the household of God being built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ himself being the chief cornerstone, the foundation of the apostles and prophets. And then turn in the book of Revelation to chapter 21 and verse 14. We have a beautiful description of the city of God, the new Jerusalem coming down from heaven. We read in verse 14, the wall of the city had 12 foundations, 
and on them twelve names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. The city of God, the new Jerusalem, is founded upon the apostles themselves, both John and Paul being a witness to that. And so Jesus says, I will build my church upon the confessing apostles as its foundation. And now we ask, what does this building activity consist in? The poetic parallel of Matthew 16, 18 has to be appreciated. After Jesus says he will build his church, he says, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. And the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. The building activity of Jesus amounts to the gates of Hades being beaten down as his church goes forth to conquer the nations. And the gates of Hades will not be able to prevail against that. What do we mean by the gates of Hades here? Uh, commentaries will differ with one another on that. Some think that it's to be taken literally, I guess. Some would take it figuratively. Some think the gates of Hades is a figure of speech part for whole, as we say. That is to say, it just stands for Hades itself, gates being the indication of Hades. Others would say it's the threshold or the gates of hell that Jesus is referring to. It's not all of hell, but just the gates, the threshold. And then others will ask, well, do the gates stand here for keeping some people in, or do they stand for keeping others out? What's Jesus referring to? And what is Hades? Is Hades just the general abode of the dead, or is Hades particularly the abode of the damned? Or is Hades here just the headquarters of the satanic host? How is Jesus using this imagery? And what does he mean? when he says that the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. Does he mean not against Peter? Some people have argued that way. They said this means Peter won't die until Jesus returns. Kind of a far-fetched interpretation, but that's been proposed. Others have said that the it here refers to the church, not to Petra or to Peter. It refers to the church so that Hades doesn't prevail against it meaning that the church is imprisoned in Hades and will be released when Jesus descends into hell and then finally ascends into heaven. Another bizarre interpretation. The church is being trapped in, behind Hades' gates. The gates will fly open as Jesus ascends on high. Some will say that the church will do its own releasing by its descent with Jesus into hell. Others have said that in the future, final hostilities, the hostilities of Satan, will not wipe out the church. The church will be protected against the onslaught of Hades itself, the gates referring to where the enemies of the church storm out of, out of the gates of Hades against the church. But I want to propose to you that all of these extremes do not fit the context, do not at all honor what Jesus is saying. Jesus is referring to the church assaulting Hades and Hades not prevailing. That is the meaning of the Greek verb that is used there. Hades will not prevail. And who is it that's in Hades? Well, according to the uniform teaching of the Bible, those who are unbelievers in Jesus Christ are trapped in Satan's domain. Those who do not belong to the Savior have taken the wide gate to destruction However, Jesus says that gate leading to destruction will not prevail as the church comes seeking those 
who have chosen to be part of Satan's domain. In fact, the gates of Hades, you need to understand according to Old Testament imagery, um, refers to the abode of the dead, those who are under the condemnation of God. Let's look just at one illustration this morning. Isaiah 38.10. Back to the prophecy of Isaiah at the 38th chapter in the 10th verse. Hezekiah, recovering from his sickness, writes, I said, in the noontide of my days, I shall go into the gates of Sheol, the gates of Hades. I am deprived of the residue of my years. Hezekiah uses this expression, the gates of hell, then for the threshold of death. The Hebrew equivalent, the gates of Sheol, means just that, entrance into the place of the dead. I think if you turn it back to Matthew 16, you'll notice an interesting literary parallel in terms of the structure of Jesus' words in verses 17, 18, and 19. All three of those verses are poetically arranged in three clauses. The first clause gives the theme, and the second two clauses explain in antithetical parallelism what that theme amounts to. So you have A, and then an explanation in terms of an antithetical parallel, something set over against another. Let's look at that. Verse 17, Jesus answered and said unto him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona. What's the explanation? Flesh and blood did not reveal it, but on the other hand, my Father who is in heaven. Theme, antithetical parallel. Verse 18, And I say unto thee, Thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. We'll come back to that in verse 19. Theme, I will give thee the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Antithetical parallel. And whatever you will bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatsoever you shall loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. So if that is a correct view of the literary structure of these three verses, notice that 18 then is a declaration that Jesus will build his church and the opposite of that is the gates of hell will not prevail against it. The building of the church is simultaneously the destruction of the gates of hell. The gates of Hades will not prove stronger then as the church grows and as Jesus, the sovereign Messiah, builds his kingdom through it. This is true to the biblical theological themes that we find throughout Scripture. In the Old Testament, the prophesied salvation of God is seen as releasing captives and distributing plunder. We've already read that this morning in Isaiah 53, verses 12, excuse me, 11 and 12, where there the suffering servant of the Lord shall divide the spoil with the stronger. He shall have plunder. He shall have victory because of his redemptive work. Look also at Isaiah 49, verses 23 to 26. Isaiah 49, verses 23 to 26. And kings shall be thy nursing fathers, and queens thy nursing mothers. They shall bow down to thee with their faces to the earth, and lick the dust of thy feet. And thou shalt know that I am Jehovah, and they that wait for me shall not be put to shame. Shall the prey be taken from the mighty, or the lawful captives be delivered? 
But thus saith Jehovah, even the captives of the mighty shall be taken away, and the prey of the terrible shall be delivered. For I will contend with him that contendeth with thee, and I will save thy children. And I will feed them that oppress thee with their own flesh, and they shall be drunken with their own blood as with sweet wine. And all flesh shall know that I, Jehovah, am the Savior, and thy Redeemer, the Mighty One of Jacob. This prophecy of salvation, you see, is accompanied with the imagery of the prey being delivered, that even those who are captive to the mighty shall be set free. In the New Testament, we have constantly the imagery of those who belong to Satan being children of wrath, Ephesians 2, captives of Satan, literally, in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 26. We are told that they are destined to spend eternity in hell with Satan in the lake of fire, Revelation 20, verses 10 to 15. And so the Old Testament prophesied that Jesus would come and save his people mightily and set them free from captivity. The New Testament tells us that those who are set free are captive to Satan. They are part of his domain and destined to spend eternity with him in hell, in Hades. And then above all, we need to see that Jesus characterized his saving ministry as that of invading Satan's domain and dividing Satan's spoil, just as Isaiah had prophesied. Matthew, the 12th chapter, verses 25 to 29. Matthew 12, at verse 25, Jesus says, And knowing their thoughts, he said unto them, Every kingdom divided against itself is brought to desolation, and every city or house divided against itself shall not stand. And if Satan cast out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then shall his kingdom stand? But if I, by Satan, cast out demons, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore shall they be your judges. But if I, by the Spirit of God, cast out demons, which is what is taking place, then is the kingdom of God come upon you. Now listen to this. Or how can one enter into the house of the strong man and spoil his goods, his people captive to my kingdom? I am dividing the plunder and the spoil to myself. That's what's happening as you see me cast out demons. The kingdom of God has come and Satan is going to be the loser for it. Satan is going to be plundered for it. Jesus says to Peter, and I will build my church, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against the growth of my church. As I build my church, it shall enter into the very domain of Satan and take the captives free. It shall enjoy the plunder and the spoil of my victorious redemptive work. Now, this is the promise we have. The defensive gates of the destroyer Satan behind which unbelievers are imprisoned will not prove stronger than the church. They will not prevail and be able to hold back against the invading church, which by its preaching shall release the captives and destroy Satan's stronghold. In Romans, the 16th chapter, verses 20 and 26, Paul picks up on this imagery himself. Romans 16, at verse 20. He says, and the God of peace shall bruise Satan under your feet shortly. And verse 26, but now is manifested by the scriptures of the prophets according to the commandment of the eternal God and is made known unto all the nations unto the obedience of faith. 
Paul says the obedience of faith is coming to all nations as God bruises, as God crushes Satan under your feet shortly. So we live in a day of despair for those who will not listen to the Messiah. The Messiah says, I will build my church. I have the assurance of God's promise and the power of God's spirit. I will build my church. And you can be so confident in that that I'll tell you that Satan himself in the abode of the damned shall not hold out against the onslaught of my people. My church shall be built and Satan's domain shall be plundered. We have a great deal of confidence about the growth of the church then that Jesus gives us. The kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. So says Revelation, the 11th chapter. Jesus declares in Matthew 12, which we just read, that his kingdom has now been established on earth. In the Great Commission, Jesus says, All power and authority in heaven and on earth is mine. Therefore, disciple the nations. In Revelation 20, we read that Satan has been bound so that he can deceive the nations no more. Matthew 12 tells us Jesus entered into Satan's domain and tied up the strong man. He has bound him so that he can now plunder Satan's house, so that God's people can now go out and disciple the nations and bring them to the Savior. Look at Hebrews. In the second chapter, verse 9, Jesus is there seen crowned with glory and honor and throned at God's right hand. And according to chapter 10 of Hebrews, verse 13, he is there enthroned at God's right hand, henceforth expecting his enemies to be made the footstool of his feet. Psalm 2, verse 8 says, he need only ask the Father, and the very nations will be given to him as his inheritance and the uttermost parts of the earth for his possession. Isaiah said, Of the increase of his government and peace there shall be no end. Upon the throne of David and upon his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from henceforth and forever. The zeal of Jehovah of hosts will perform this. Daniel said that the kingdom of God will grow from being a stone that becomes a mountain that finally fills the earth. And he declares, the dream is certain, Nebuchadnezzar, this shall certainly happen. In Isaiah, the second chapter, we read that the mountain of God's house shall be exalted above all the other hills and mountains, and all the nations shall flow into Mount Zion and shall there learn the law of our God and shall learn to live in peace and righteousness toward each other. All nations are going to come into God's house and be nurtured by his word. Psalm 72, In his days shall the righteous flourish in abundance of peace until the moon be no more. He shall have dominion from sea to sea, from river unto the ends of the earth, and his enemies shall lick the dust. All the nations shall serve him. Isaiah 11:9. All the ends of the earth shall turn unto Jehovah, and the earth will be full of the knowledge of Jehovah as the waters cover the sea. In Revelation 19, Jesus is seen riding upon a white horse, victorious with the sword of God, proceeding from his mouth, the preaching of the gospel, the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, conquering all opposition to him. In Romans 11, Paul tells us the fullness of the Gentiles will one day be brought in, and that will itself provoke even the Jews to jealousy so that they will then be received once again into the kingdom of God and saved, which will signify, Paul says, a veritable life from the dead for the world. 
Now, where is our confidence? Is it in the newspaper? Is it in the writings of David Hunt about the seduction and the destruction of the church? Is our confidence in the doomsayers or is our confidence in the word of the Lord? Is the Bible pessimistic about the kingdom of Jesus Christ? Does Jesus have any question about the building of his church? I will build my church. Not even Hades will stop me from doing it. And how will this be accomplished? How will Jesus bring about the sure increase of his people? How will Jesus see to it that his church is built on earth? Well, the New Testament clearly points to the enabling presence of Christ with the church. And the preaching of the gospel is the means by which this is accomplished. In the Great Commission, Jesus prefaces his words by saying, Lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. That's how you're going to do this. All power and authority is mine. I'm with you to the end of the age. Therefore, disciple the nations. Preach the gospel. And I, being with you, will accomplish my work. We see this on the day of Pentecost as Jesus sends the Spirit to the church. Acts, the second chapter, the powerful work of the Spirit in this day is one of widespread conversion, powerful preaching, persuasion, the changing of men's hearts and the bringing them into the kingdom of Jesus Christ. You see, that's preaching Pentecostal Christianity. Not tongues, not charismatic gifts, not things that were only meant for the founding of the church, but for the building up of the church and the power of the Spirit. So that when we preach with conviction, 3,000 can be expected to be converted in one day. And that spirit is not a different spirit than we enjoy in our services right here. That spirit is not different from that which motivates us and strengthens and guides us as Christians in this age. The Pentecostal spirit of Jesus Christ is with the church. He will build his church. Matthew chapter 13 Jesus said that with such resources, the kingdom of God will be characterized by surprising growth. How surprising? He says, just think of a mustard seed. You can hardly see a mustard seed. Put it in your hand, you have to look, you know, not lose it in the crevices of your hand. That mustard seed will grow to be a mighty tree, which even the birds of heaven will flock to. It'll be so large. Yes, my kingdom looks small now, but it shall grow. I will build it. The Spirit will see to it. The zeal of Jehovah of hosts shall accomplish it. And so in the preaching of the gospel, through the enabling presence of Christ and the power of the Pentecostal Spirit, this shall be accomplished marvelously, mysteriously, against all odds and against all expectations. The sure growth of the church is what is prophesied in God's word. I think we see this in five ways. We see the sure growth of the church in steady additions to the body of Christ. This morning we will enjoy seeing that another addition to the body of Christ. Another who joins himself or herself to God's people and says, yes, I want to stand up and be covenanted before God and before his people. That's how Jesus is building his church. Secondly, Jesus is building it through the missionary outreach of the body of Christ, through the evangelistic work of his people. He gives them confidence, gives them insight, gives them a persuasiveness and a winsomeness to be his ambassadors to men and beseech them to be reconciled to God. Thirdly, Jesus is building his church through the greater efficiency of the ministry that he makes possible. He trains better ministers age after age, and within any particular age, he helps his ministers to become more efficient in their work. 
One of the ways in which I believe God is doing that in our midst is through the, the merger that we are talking about, where we'll be able to see a ministerial explosion in our own congregation as we have more elders and more pastors working in harmony with one another in the same geographical location to see the kingdom advance. Jesus is building his church through the strengthening of covenant homes as well. As we become more concerned and consistent as parents to raise our children in the fear and admonition of the Lord, to catechize our children, to have them knowledgeable of the ways of the Lord, to have them marry in the Lord, and to build further homes that grow, demonstrating the kingdom of Jesus Christ. And fifthly, we see the accomplishing of Jesus' promise in the visible public influence of the church. As the church operates like salt in a rotting society and light in a dark world to scatter its darkness, the visible influence of the church, not only for moral matters, but also as people look to it in respect for the lifestyle and the love of God's people, that too is the expanding influence of Jesus' church. And so this is how it's being accomplished. Steady additions to the body of Christ, evangelistic and missionary growth, greater efficiency in the ministry, strengthening of our covenant homes, and the visible public influence of the church. The conclusion we have to draw, brothers and sisters, is that which John tells us of in Revelation, the third chapter, verses 7 to 9, where there Jesus writes to the church through John that his believing and his persevering church has a door opened which none can shut. Consequently, even the antagonistic opponents of the church will bow down to the church. Have you read that in Revelation? Jesus says, I will bring even the Jews, those of the synagogue of Satan, to bow down at your feet and acknowledge that I am among you. Jesus promises his church that it will have authority with him over the nations. I will set you upon my throne, Jesus says, and together we will rule over the nations. Now Jesus has said to you, you have a door open. No man can shut that door. A wide vista of success and power and growth. And if you don't go through that door, and if you don't accomplish this ministry, it will not be my fault. It will not be for lack of resources. It will not be for lack of power. It will not be lack for guidance. It will be for lack of faith and lack of obedience and a lack of a desire to be harmonious and work together and to see the end result and to be persecuted for righteousness' sake and to be embarrassed before men, you will lack the faith to do what I've given you to do, but you will not be lacking success for any of the resources I give you because I'm opening a door and no man will ever shut that door. Jesus said, I will build my church. I praise God that we do not work on the losing side in history. That Satan has been bound, and it is our privilege as we move forward in all of our activities, in all of our services, and all of our outreach as God's people, and even through our congregational meetings, to plunder Satan's house. Let's pray. Lord, we ask you to continue to build your church. We ask you that you might mercifully and graciously deign to build your church through us, through our feeble efforts and our inconsistent and sinful efforts. We pray that you would build us up and strengthen us and purify us, that we might faithfully follow you in your word and be strengthened by your spirit to have the confidence that you will see victory through us and be satisfied with the travail of your soul. Lord, we do pray that you would continue the work of building 
build us up here. How we thank you for the growth that we have seen as your people. How we thank you for the prospects of further growth that we enjoy. And Lord, we do pray that we would not take any of these blessings lightly. That we would not think that somehow they have come to us in our own wisdom or strength. But we would honor you as the one who grants increase to your body. We would honor the Spirit as the one who adds to the church daily. And that we might simply be pleased to be part of your building process. We do ask that Jesus would receive the glory, for he is the builder, he is the foundation, he is the one for whom we live and about whom we preach. May Jesus be glorified, and may you hasten that day in which all the kingdoms of this world shall belong to him, the one who is our Lord and Christ. Amen.